0: Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of restaurantowner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. Running a restaurant involves making a lot of tough decisions, but choosing Touch Bistro's POS isn't one of them. Our sponsor, Touch Bistro, offers an all-in-one POS and restaurant management system that's easy to use, easy to manage, and easy to afford. Find out why thousands of restaurants trust Touch Bistro to help them simplify operations, increase sales, and deliver a great guest experience. Here are your hosts, Barry Schuster and Chris Tripoli.
1: Well, thank you for joining us and welcome to another Corner
2: Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli. And I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine.
1: And Barry and I today have the great pleasure of speaking with longtime, very well established restaurant consultant, Arlene Spiegel. Arlene, welcome to Corner Booth. Yeah,
3: it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Arlene, when
2: we started the magazine, uh, first launched in 2004, even at that point, you were a recognized expert in the industry and and you've been providing lots of insights and expertise for the magazine for a long time and to your clients, of course. But we always like to let our, our listeners know, you know, what was your path into this business? How did you get to where you are now? If uh, you could kind of share that so people know who's, on, who's talking today.
3: Well, thank you. I had the uh, privilege of being born into a restaurant family. Uh, I didn't think it was a privilege then because my brother and I had to work weekends and nights and get up from our chairs when paying customers would come into the restaurant. I I really thought it was a crazy business. And I just remember at the end of the day, uh, everyone sitting down, all the staff and my grandfather and my, my uncle's uh, and my father and literally, you know, counting out of a cigar box <laughs> how, how much money they made and divvying it up and seeing if there was anything left for tomorrow. And I realized at the time that, you know, it it, it was a business that was really meal to meal, dollar to dollar. And that has stayed with me, uh, even though I have, you know, much more business expertise now and know have been doing consulting it never left me those early years of exposure that it's nickels and dimes and we can't waste anything so that was my early intro into it and of course hating the fact that I never was able to go out with friends I wound up trying to do everything but be in the restaurant business as I grew older so you know going to school and also taking courses in business Some little life challenges happened personally, and I needed to go to work and make money. And what did I know? Restaurants. However, I didn't approach it in the mom and pop fashion that my family did. I became more sophisticated and really started keeping records and following trends. And at the time in the 80s, that whole California movement of healthy eating came in. So a little place became available in my restaurant. I had two little children at that time. And I opened a restaurant called the Garden of Eating. And I put all of my philosophies and principles to place to take the chaos out of the business. And it turned out to be very successful. And it made a lot of money. And uh, must have been the year of the woman because I got a lot of attention and won the Woman of the Year Award by the Small Business Association. And after that, it was just became my passion. And uh, so many of the early lessons I learned from my family, those still are with me. Number one, it's a nickel and dime business, but number two, restaurants aren't just businesses. They're valuable parts of a community. And I still remember when in my parents in the family restaurant, when somebody walked by the window, my uncle would say, oh, we got to get the coffee ready. This one likes their coffee black. And that one's daughter got married. And we have to remember that they like their soup hot. And I realized there was this huge connection between the community that we were serving and the food part of it. And then the business on top of that, I just became very fascinated with the whole industry. And I just keep growing and learning. And my clients make me smarter and reading great publications. And I belong to the Food Service Consultant Society International. So I have really a global... Network of people that make me smarter every day. And now I work with hotels and restaurant chains and casinos and hot dog stands and uh, all kinds of businesses that want to either get established or grow or scale. And with COVID, a lot of them have changed their whole business models now. So that's where I am today.
1: Wow, what a tremendous uh, intro, I think. And I think all the listeners can uh, understand that the hard work. Uh, I think your early impressions mean a lot. The fact that it's it's a tight margin. You learned that early on. And it's also a service industry. I love that. Early on, you remembered people coming by the windows and thinking how they like this and how they want that served. And, And then, of course, then you had the innate ability now to not only use those principles to succeed in your own restaurant, but now use those principles to teach people in your consulting when did you switch to the consulting? How did it go from the garden of eating? And then how did it go into beginning to advise and teach others?
3: Well, this is a terrific question because my passion, be, other than the food business, was really to become an attorney. I was actually taking classes in pre-law at some point when this whole change in my life happened and I had to leave law school to go into becoming a uh, an entrepreneur, a business person. Uh, It wasn't law school yet. It was pre-law. And what happened was I called my attorney up and said, you know, what can I do? People are starting to call me now that I've got this business woman of the year award and I have the successful restaurant and restaurant business magazine asked me to do columns for them. So he said, well, first of all, find a separate Entity, we'll have to set up a different corporation because the restaurant business is not a consulting business. But he says, if people are asking your advice, it's basically set up like any professional practice. And I set up a little practice at the time it was called culinary counseling and uh, people started calling me. And of course, we didn't have Internet. And people actually calling on landlines and they said, you know, I want to open up a little pizza place. Can you help me? And I came up with a little uh, brochure and uh, um, what happened was within two years, my consulting practice was bringing in more joy, flexibility in my time and more money than the restaurant business was. So I said, well, let's see if I could juggle both for a while. But at some point, the consulting became overwhelming. And I had several restaurants at that point. And so I wound up selling to my partner and, uh, and went off and did strictly consulting at that point. And I did consulting on my own for many, many years and then a little company called PricewaterhouseCoopers loved my hospitality practice. And came in and made me an offer I couldn't refuse and they basically acquired my practice and made me the global food and beverage director of PricewaterhouseCoopers and I was there for several years.
2: Wow, PWC, that's no small thing.
3: Yeah, I know. I'm saying it like, you know, facetiously. But ironically, as great as the company was and, and they were so professional, it took me away from what I love to do, which is to work mm-hmm. with startups. And while I worked on, you know, with Holiday Inn and Coca Cola and many, many of the big chains while I was with uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers. Uh, I did miss my my startup guys, you know, the the, the, the immigrants who came here and mm-hmm. had a, a dream of opening up a falafel shop, you know, and uh, and, and I missed it and I wanted it. So um, so I left Coopers and I started my own separate mm-hmm. firm called Arlene Spiegel and Associates. And uh, and I've been doing this for over 20 years under that corporate
2: name. Excellent. I met with PwC recently, and they like to say that even if you leave them, it's not a bad thing to have on your resume to have pass through there.
3: Yeah, and and you know the truth is that they they re- still re- refer to me because there was no one that really replaced me in that practice. Because the truth is that when you're working for a consulting or an accounting or a law firm, they don't know the food business, and exactly. they didn't, they just don't know that you know they they you know, glorified bean counters at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And they provide a service and they do taxes and benefits and all of that. But they don't know what to do when the ice machine breaks down or the chef doesn't show up. Mm -hmm. Or there's all of a sudden construction in front of your door and your customers can't come in. Or, or now what's going on with the supply chain and I, I, I'm working with the Cherokee Nation tribe in Oklahoma now. I just did a big food haul for them and we can't get friolators. <laughs> you know, there's a shortage of friolators somehow. So, you know, if you're not in the business and I, again, I go back to my family where I learned so much of this. Uh, well, what do you do? You know, well, we don't fry. So you change your recipe. So you roast or you broil or you change the menu item. But this is where I look to come in and, and kind of solve problems for people.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you had um, mentioned in your introduction about dealing with your clients during COVID and changing business models and, mm-hmm. and something I really want to talk about, but I'm going to just lead with it now, I guess. Is you know they're all during COVID. We all saw in the trade press and the general business press using this term pivot. Oh, okay, so you pivot to takeout and delivery, as if it's just basically a dance step. Okay. And you know, I was talking to somebody today, and it really hit me between the eyes. If you weren't set up for takeout and delivery, it wasn't just a pivot. Your POS system may have not been set up for it. Your operations may not been set up for it. It was a great opportunity to ruin your brand by not knowing what you're doing well, where the companies that were the brands that already were in that business, there was no problem. That's what they were doing anyway. How did you help uh, get your clients who were not in that? You know, heavily in a takeout delivery to get them there seamlessly, so that they could run really as a a separate business effectively. Does
3: that make sense? Well, you're you're really posing you know a topic now that probably made everyone stand up and say, oh my God, what am I going to do? I don't have curbside for someone to drive up and pick up. I don't have a place for people to stand and and wait for their food delivery. I don't have a third-party platform like Seamless or Grubhub or DoorDash. You know, I'm a sit-down restaurant. People come in and dine. And uh, when that was all cut off, especially with the space and the distancing uh, issues and restrictions that were involved, If you wanted to stay in business, you had to figure out how to do exactly what you said. How do I get my product to the guest through delivery or pickup when my dining room is set up for sit down, full service, you know, kind of of dining. And so what I did with them was, first of all, I said, do you want to do this? Because it's a big commitment to do it. It's not just flipping your kitchen around and setting up a staging area to to create an assembly line. It really required uh, menu engineering, uh, staffing, packaging, sanitation and safety, delivery mobility, whether it's, are you gonna do your own self delivery? Do you need carts? Do you need trucks? Do you need insulated bags? So I literally created something that was a checklist. and I actually called it Comeback Strong, where I came in and when I say came in, usually it was a zoom where I had the architect, I had the food service consultant, I had the operator, I had the chef. and I said, all right, let's look at where all of the opportunities are and where the obstacles are to convert this into more of a manufacturing plant if you will, than a restaurant. And I gave it a new name. I called it grocerant because it was almost like a grocery delivery because I said, well, if you're serving people uh, with meals, you know, they can't go out and shop now because of COVID. How about if we also asked them if they would like some milk, some bread? some, uh, some ketchup, you know, some basics for their pantry. So we we actually became an added on value, because it was such a convenience and so much appreciated by those dine in guests to not only get some quality meals with a limited menu, we didn't have the full spectrum in most places. But you know what, what else can we do to help you? And we actually had one restaurant, Havana Central, that was a that's a Cuban restaurant, a client of mine and also another client of mine, Hill Country Barbecue. They were also saying, do you need paper towels? Anything we can get from a restaurant suppliers that you can't get in your grocery store, tell us, we'll stock it for you. And so. Instead of looking at it as, oh, my God, what am I going to do? We looked at it as an opportunity to not lose the clientele, but to actually build a deeper, more sensitive, more caring, compassionate relationship with them. And boy, have these people been rewarded, these restaurants that went all out and made themselves the, the, the cornerstone of that whole scary survival time. They're being rewarded with loyalty now, uh, and then some. And of course, they, uh, they also rewarded their staff. You know, whoever stayed, you know, got promoted and got better compensation and uh, it just it just really made you rethink everything and you know that's a good thing in life and in business to step back and take inventory what's working what's not who can i count on what how can i push myself to be better and to provide a better service and uh and then from there you hopefully got some money from the government to keep going and pay mm-hmm. your rent and then and then you rise
2: a very positive thing that i'm hearing from this is that consumers aren't as fickle as some people might like them like to believe. Loyalty still counts out there. Um, consumers will will reward a business that takes care of them. Is has that been your experience?
3: Well especially in neighborhood business, yes. When you know when you when you're really part of a community. Now there are also other restaurants that are for example in Midtown or in cities where they count on tourism or they count on office workers or they count on Broadway shows, you know, and people Mm -hmm. coming in. And if that was a big part of their clientele, then they had to come up with a whole different strategy. So I would really talk to them about literally talking to their landlords and allowing them to get temporary outdoor seating. Because once outdoor seating came in and they were able to build those climate controlled huts outside, at least they were able to get some people in. And then when the restrictions came off and people were able to eat inside, even though there were spaces and separators, it at least showed that they were still there. Business has not come back to the cities the way it has into the so-called neighborhoods and the suburbs yet. Mm -hmm. But guess what? We found other sources of income because there became needs out there that we didn't know that we were able to fulfill. So all of the hospital workers, the the schools and institutions, the, uh, you know, the the Meals on Wheels people, they needed to eat. So these restaurants started to become ghost kitchens. And while they weren't serving their regular customer, they were at least keeping product moving and keeping cash flow moving and keeping their employees moving. And those relationships now are also solid. They're not the old customers who have now come back since COVID has kind of calmed down. But now they have realized they have a whole new uh, revenue stream. And why wouldn't they? Mm
1: -hmm.
3: So Mm -hmm. it, it became opportunistic. I always think that these challenges have to be met. It's not even can they be. They have to be met. People have to eat. We're in the service business. We're, we're in the hospitality business. We're in the taking care of people. We're, we're in the business of uplifting people. Every cup of coffee, every thank you, every experience that people have when they come into your establishment or if they're getting a delivery from your establishment has to uplift them. That's success. That's success. And that's what people really value. They may not remember that your soup wasn't always hot enough or you forgot the straws and the napkins and you take out order. But the, the kindness and, and the, uh, the honesty of the communication, the, the gratefulness, that's what makes a loyal customer.
1: <laughs> Wonderfully said. Wonderfully said. I, I, I especially like the fact that it seemed to lead with anything you do with your clients uh, towards the solution, not with the problem. Um, I I mean, I hear that in what you're saying. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think it's a tremendous focus. I I like that you even had a term for your approach to your clients, uh, your program, come back strong. Mm -hmm. I think people at that time needed to realize uh, just that, that they needed to focus on coming back. Uh, They needed to focus on their strength, not their weakness. Um, what, I, what I'd like to uh, have you talk a little bit about now is, um, is the challenges, I guess, since COVID. Um, mm-hmm. People that you're working with now after the uh, learning of the curbside or the development of the outside dining, after the um, um, uh, assistance with the menuing and uh, the kinds of things that we had to do a- in order to succeed. What are the challenges that your clients are facing now, and how are you helping them with the things that we're hearing about, like the uh, the competitive atmosphere, the fighting for staff, the problem with supplies? Um, how do you face those challenges well, today?
3: It, it's it's the the thing that you come across all the time is you know, when you meet with clients that uh, they're they're nervous, they're they're panicky, all right. You know this part is over. I got through this. My landlord's letting me calm down with the rent. You know what's next? What should I do? And I always try to come up with what is the most important thing. Why does your business exist? Why are you here in the first place? Why did you do this? Let's go back and and think about why you why do you want to stay in this business. And chances are no one's talking to them like that because they're all so panicky about what they can't do. I try to get them back into what they loved and what their original purpose was in going into this business. And very often, most often, it will come up with, you know, I I just love these recipes or I, I feel that this neighborhood needs my my pizza or or, or whatever it might be. Um, Or, you know, how could I let my staff down? So many of them count on me for this job. I said, all right, so if there's a real reason to be here, what can we do to make it work? And then we start looking for ways to make it work. And sometimes um, they weren't operating optimally, most uh, effectively prior to this challenge. So I said, well, good. Now's the time. Let's white paper this and let's see what are your best sellers. And I have them start looking into their point of sale reports and which they sometimes never do. Oh, one person loves this. We can't take it off the menu. I said, well, they're going to have to live without it. And I help them make decisions that will streamline. The other thing, Uh, that I help them do is, uh, and and these are pretty sophisticated people, but if you're not paying attention to what AI and the technology and the information you're getting from your point of sales reports, then you're wasting your money. You might as well go back to the cigar box because all of the information is actionable. So the first thing I do is say, let's look realistically, if we could eliminate one full-time person in the kitchen and we can outsource our baked goods by working with one of our suppliers and we could shift our hours around to the most profitable date part, then you're going to be fine. And they try it. They're slow. They're nervous to do it. They have learned to use social media to communicate with the guests. they become much better at Phone etiquette, which I know is a big part of what you all talk about, because now people can't come in all the time. That communication on the phone and through online marketing becomes that hospitality. That becomes the, the relationship. And with making minor and incremental changes without upsetting the guest, they have learned to do business better. And so many times I'll check back in with them they'll go, I don't know why we, we weren't doing this all the time. You know, why didn't we didn't lose any people because we don't have five soups and we only have two now, you know, no one cares that we opened an hour later or that, or that we closed earlier on a Monday night. And the other thing is that the people who did stay, the staff who stayed I said, let's train them. Let's develop them, Maybe One of them wants to learn how to do inventory management. Maybe one of them wants to go from being a dishwasher to being a pantry person. Let's really focus on what we have and make the most of it. And it's just becomes a condition. And now I get emails, oh, we tried this and it worked. And I think sometimes they just need someone to say, you can do this. I'm gonna hold your hand and we're gonna do this together and you will do this. And it works. I mean, this food hall project with the Cherokee Nation, the reason they did a food hall was they called me up with COVID and said, we had to shut down our buffets. No one wants to share tongs and see food exposed. So I came up with this model and it turns out that it's much more popular. The food quality and specialty is better. They have much more flexibility with opening and closing some of the seven venues that are in there. And- the staff is cross-trained to work in any one of the venues, plus the fact that it became an asset to the Cherokee brand, which really was known for gaming and not so much for their food. Now this food hall has put them on the map as a serious place to go eat, whether you're going to game or not.
1: Yes, I, you know what, I, that's an excellent example. And the, the buffet switching into individual type kiosks, making it now more of an order up. Mm-hmm. Uh, food hall. So people have choice of venue uh, because you can't have the food out there. That's an excellent yeah. example of seeing the right. problem as a challenge mm-hmm. and helping them with a the solution. I'm so glad that worked, quite frankly. I mean, personally, I would like that better anyway. So, yes.
3: And, and you know what the good part is? We were able to come up with what I call a safety net. So that if for some reason they get hit again with some kind of other virus that comes into it, guess what? We set it up where people could still order from their phones and get food delivered from any one of the different kiosks to their room, to their poker table, or out the door. That we were able to come up with a menu where you could actually sit at one of the tables in the communal area and not have to even go up to the counter, but either order from a QR code on a menu or from one of the mobile kiosks at the entrance of the food hall. And the operators are saying the busiest times for us are on the weekends and holidays, so they have all seven venues open. Mm-hmm. And on Mondays, they don't have their barbecue open. And it's just worked out so beautifully. People love it. And we tied it in through technology and software collaboration, the rewards program. So that, you know, casinos, they're always giving comps to their high rollers and their players. So we were able to integrate all of that. So no one missed a beat. And their labor costs are down. Their waste is down down. And the cash flow was up. It was a good ending.
0: Our sponsor, Touch Bistro, powers thousands of restaurants with its all-in-one POS and restaurant management platform. Beyond its exceptionally easy-to-use point of sale, Touch Bistro provides best-in-class customer engagement products for online ordering, loyalty, email marketing, and gift cards. Whether you're focused on restaurant operations or keeping customers coming back for more, Touch Bistro can help. And now, back to Chris and Barry. Labor. We always have
2: to talk about that right now. Um, although things do seem to be changing a bit in the labor market, to some degree, um, because of the changes in the economy. But got to believe your fingers on the pulse of of that constantly. What are you thinking? What are you saying? What are you telling people, particularly to independent operators? Um, What's on your dial there?
3: It, it's a problem. We've lost thousands and thousands and thousands of people from the industry who, you know, took this hiatus where they weren't working and said, you know, I can find something better or they moved out of town. Uh, and frankly, uh, what's happened is that a lot of the hourly workers, while in some states and cities, they were being paid well and many they weren't and they Felt that they would try their hand at different uh, in different industries. I mean, I don't have to tell you, Amazon was offering eighteen dollars an hour with full benefits, uh, you know, and, and here we're competing for that for dishwashers that we have to now pay eighteen dollars an hour too. So, yeah. uh, so I don't know if it's ever going to come back, but here's the good news. Here's where the manufacturers and the distributors have really stepped up because you have to think about paying a chef, a sous chef, a prep chef, anywhere from $20 to $23 an hour to peel carrots makes no sense when you realize between buying the carrots, five pounds of carrots, after you peel them and cut off the ends becomes four pounds of carrots. And so you're still paying a premium for the yield. So it's forced all of the restaurants that I work with to talk talk about yield management. What do you really need for this recipe? And does it pay for a chef to be doing this? or does it pay to buy peeled carrots from one of your local suppliers or even a mainline distributor? So the whole idea of looking at the cost benefit ratios of outsourcing, do you really need a pastry chef or can you get an amazing cheesecake from any of five companies and then just put your signature raspberry sauce on top of it? Well. One company I work with a chain was having two days a week pastry chefs come into all of their different venues to make cheesecake and brownies and a few other items. In one year, by eliminating those positions, I saved the company $276,000 in labor. And we got products that were more consistent. So this is what we're doing. We're coming up with all kinds of creative ways for menu engineering, outsourcing, buying some products that are really excellent. And if you have the volume, you will have manufacturers make things custom for you. So there's no reason, you know, why we wouldn't do that. I mean, there are, are companies that provide all kinds of proteins that, that they cook in sous vide and have a very long shelf life and can deliver to you. A lot of kitchens are going away now. We're looking at re-thermalizing things now uh, as opposed to cooking from scratch. And at the end of the day, if the guest gets an amazing, consistent meal with a high value in terms of the price, along with your compassionate, caring service, They're not asking you who's making the roast beef. They just see this wonderful roast beef on the plate. I learned that actually, which is a throwback to one of my earlier projects. Um, I was asked to come in to Burger King years ago and this whole have it your way was killing them because it was holding up the lines and people wanted mayo and mustard and this and that. And I said, you know, this is crazy. The whole system was falling apart. The the franchisees weren't making money. And so Diageo who owned it at the time, uh, called me in and said, what are we gonna do here? And I said, and again, I go into what you all talk about all the time. Look at the numbers, what's selling. And I looked across the system they had over 20,000 stores at the time. And I said, burger, fries, Coke. Burger Fry's Coke. No matter where in the city, where in the country, it was Burger Fries Coke. I said, you know, it would probably be a lot less money if we could open up a Burger King Express. We don't have to worry about this menu and have it your way. We focus on the things people like. We can have a walk-up window, a drive-through window. Maybe in some locations, we could even have a few seats. And so we built 11 test Burger King Expresses with those three items. Well, that was it, it saved the company because most people will have burgers, fries, and Coke. And every now and then we had one of the franchisees beg us, can we at least do a shake? Or or can we do the Whopper, you know, but so what? Still, they would, and from a capital expense, we could build three Burger King Expresses to one of the full service sit-down restaurants. It's a great
1: example. Um, and, and I know the goal there, of course, was simplicity, consistency, so that you can increase profit and you can manage consistently. I, I, you mentioned that a couple of times, and I think that, that was a perfect example. I think the listeners need to pay uh, attention to is that if they just study what's working and find ways of how can I do more of that? do it better because consistency equals profitability. Operating simpler um, keeps the operation uh, easier to manage with fewer people. Taking that same formula, how do you work with clients in today's technology? What type of reports do you feel they should be looking at, say, daily and weekly? Um, And how does that use of technology maybe impact today's operation, whereas, say, years ago, we didn't even have it available, had to do things differently?
3: Exactly. Well, you know, it's fairly sophisticated now. But again, I'm going to start out by saying that numbers and reports are only as good as the person who accesses them, analyzes them and and acts on them. And so we still need good managers and, and good leadership and good, good management in that case. But the point of sales now are so sophisticated that they actually, and, and, and the reports are so graphic and so easy to read, that basically you could put in whatever whoever you are, whatever operation, you know, what are the 10 most important things that you want to see every day, every shift, And then how is that moving in terms of trends? And and once you start business, you start to develop an algorithm. Once you have an algorithm, exceptions to that algorithm come up. And I always look at exceptions. For example, I always like to know, obviously, customer counts per shift. I always like to know ticket averages or per person spend. I also like to know the ratio of food to alcoholic beverages. And also, I like to understand what uh, what bottles of wine are because that tells me a little bit about the experience people are having. But it it could also uh, be tied into food costs, labor costs, scheduling. So really determining what's important for you to make decisions on a day-to-day basis, those are the reports that I generate. And then looking at them, you make decisions. And once you start seeing an exception, I'll give you an example. I like to make sure, and this goes back to my family's training, that when there is a meal order, that there's also a beverage order. It's either a soft drink or a glass of wine, but almost everyone orders a drink. When I see that drink sales are down, somebody's giving away my drinks. They're not punching it in. So I'm looking at, possible, you know, jiggering a little bit. And at the bar, it happens all the time. If you have a policy at the bar where if someone has two drinks, the bartender comps them the third, how are you gonna know that? Well, this is where technology comes in. Technology and a good security system. But again, going back to the fact that it's a nickel and dime business, if you're not watching your numbers and your rhythms and your exceptions, then you're losing money. Inventory management is another huge part of technology that people are not paying attention to and their par levels. You can actually reduce your shrink, which is another way of saying product that's missing by having a strict inventory management system. And the problem that I see is people don't take inventory every week. If you're taking inventory every month and one person's going down there with a a clipboard don't even bother you're just wasting money you need to do it every week it needs to have established par levels and it needs to be done more and more now with barcodes and scanning so that you don't have to be constantly you know physically doing it and most of the inventory management systems I know of are very tied into the mainstream distributors like a Cisco or U.S. food And they have automatic just-in-time purchasing. So if your par level is down based on usage, which is tied into your point-of-sale sales and your recipe development that you have already put in inside your your, uh, technology, your software, you don't even have to place orders. You know that your supplier is going to come there with 10 loaves of bread instead of 12, because they saw that your sales were down and your par levels were, were already satisfied. So the point of sale, the systems you set up, the barcode and scanning, and then the inventory relate management relationship with your mainline vendors all becomes part of the process map so that You can not lose product. You don't have to waste staff coming in at midnight on Sunday to do your inventory before Monday starts. And you'll always have your supplies on time. This is how good technology works now. It's not just one piece. It's putting it all together into a system that becomes the model for how you operate. Excellent.
1: Excellent. And and if Everyone would just follow those three key principles. What you're watching daily, uh, the labor and the inventory program, you've got the, the biggest portion of your business and you're watching it daily and you're working from it weekly. Well said.
3: Right, but yeah. the other thing too, is that when you get an exception report, where all of a sudden beverage sales are down or, or per person's uh, sales are way up, A manager can say, well, what happened here? How come we did so much business that day? And then, of course, it's notable, oh, well, schools were off and moms came in for lunch. You need to understand the rhythm of your clients. And then you could also use that information, those exceptions, to say, wow, last year this time we had a lot of families home. Let's anticipate that and start putting out some family promotions, some so-called early bird specials. So you also want to now get your marketing involved and put your marketing resources where you have the best, best opportunity, not just to throw things out on Instagram with pretty pictures, but what's your point? Who's your audience? What is your value proposition? What's going to make them come in? What's going to make them order for you? This is important. The other thing that I'm finding, which is fabulous, this all came out of the, the whole COVID challenge, was that my clients, even the small mom and pop ones, are finding different channels of distribution. So let's say they have a fabulous product, uh, uh, either a hamburger or, or a hot dog or, or a cake or some menu item that they're known for they can now partner with third-party platforms like we have Goldbelly or mercado where they can now have another whole marketing opportunity where they arrange to have their products featured on these other platforms and the good news is that these products do not have to be made in real time typically they're items that could be chilled or even frozen or kept with a long shelf life. And as soon as Goldbelly or Mercado or this third party gets the order, they send it to you electronically. You package it, and you could either ship it right from your restaurant, or you can work with having a certain amount of inventory of that product in the shipper or the marketing company's platform. So I have a hot dog company right now. They're famous for their hot dogs. They've been in business over 50 years and people just love it. So I made a connection between Gold Belly and Gray's Papaya, which is a great hot dog place with Mm -hmm. tropical drinks. And we sat down and we came up with, all right, if somebody wants grazed papaya, they can get 12 hot dogs. They can get a package of sauerkraut. They can get two tropical drinks and, and the buns for a package price for a, like a, a round price. And Goldbelly has inventory of that. So when they get the order, my small hot dog place doesn't even have to prepare it. All they have to do is have that inventory, a certain amount of it at Goldbelly's warehouse, their kitchens. They do all the shipping and they work out the numbers through a banking system. So nobody touches any product. So all of a sudden this little 250 square foot location on Broadway and 72nd street is now a global brand through a third party platform. It's, this is what we do.
2: We figure it out. Well, it's interesting, you know, that the and what I like hearing is that the things you're talking about are things that you were talking about in 2004. When we started the magazine. Now you're seeing, OK, now the technology can advance it so much out there in the media is like technology is just a complete paradigm shift and everything has changed. And what you're saying is we were talking about. Pre-made scratch, speed scratch, menu engineering, um, looking for other options for distribution in 2004. Now you've got some tools to really make it happen. It's not that the business practices have changed so much, but if I'm hearing you correctly, now we have tools to do what we've been talking about for 20 years better.
3: Yes. And we also have lots of other creative uh, opportunities too with Ghost Kitchens and uh, with all, all of the virtual spaces now, I have a, a catering client who is really not optimally uh, using their facility now because they're just getting back into doing weddings and bar mitzvahs and, mm-hmm. and corporate events. But they have this big kitchen. Well, what are we going to do with this big kitchen? So this this... Brilliant man who has what I call chutzpah, which is, you know, a a lot of guts and nerve and courage. Uh Um, He is now a ghost kitchen for Nathan's hot dogs, for a, a chicken chain and actually four other brands so that when people in certain neighborhoods order their branded fast casual or their fast food from a taco to a hot dog, the the delivery service comes to his catering place to pick it up. And so his back of the house, instead of just catering weddings now, has also become a ghost kitchen for four other brands. And at the same time, he decided to go into the retail business, and I helped him develop a whole line of food for grocery and retail stores called Caribbean Plate, which will be out on the market soon. So nobody's sitting around and and crying and, and twiddling their thumbs. We're getting it out there. We in the food business know what we're doing. Just let's talk. Let's talk about virtual kitchens. We we had an article in July, and I
2: believe you were quoted mm-hmm. in that um, on virtual kitchens, and you know how to make it work, how to get involved in these things, mm-hmm. and then as the issue was published next bite uh, which in my opinion was doing this as well as anyone uh announced that they had a lot of layoffs they were kind of retracting a bit um and so i don't know what the details are but it gave me some concern that maybe the virtual kitchen movement was not taking off like uh everyone believed it would going forward what are you seeing in that space upsides and then uh uh caveats
3: well i i i think that the the ghost kitchens that were able to license or partner with brands that were well known are still doing well because it was the brands that led the sale Mm -hmm. and the third party platforms had the brands on it didn't have virtual kitchen i think the people that are struggling are the ones who maybe thought that if they just did some kind of a commissary ghost kitchen in some low rent area and came up with their own brands that they named and made it appear on the DoorDash or, or seamless Grubhub platforms that it was a real restaurant, they're the ones who maybe got attention during COVID because people didn't have any choices. But once people had choices, they were going to go back to their brands. So mm-hmm. the proprietary brands, uh, you know, they they probably just didn't cut it. And also, you know, you, you can't just count on hard times where by default people are gonna order from you, you still have to be aggressive with your marketing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, I agree. I, I, I think you're right on track with that observation. Um, could you take a moment and let's talk a little bit more about what you mentioned very briefly with helping clients with retailing. I think it was called Caribbean Plate, a line of mm-hmm. product. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, tell us a little bit about that opportunity because that is something that we're seeing um, In other parts of the country, small independents having luck with branding, labeling, and retailing certain aspects of their product line.
3: Yes. So the people who did this the best years and years and years ago was TGIF with their potato skins, if you remember, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that was one of their signature products. And all of a sudden, you were able to get in a supermarket. And we know now if you go to the specialty food shows or the restaurant shows, you know, all across the country now, restaurant brands are, are packaging and labeling and branding their, you know, their, their, own, uh, their own products. But how do you get it into the retail distribution system? That's the trick. Uh, because there's a whole different network of people. First of all, if you're manufacturing something that that has any kind of a meat or dairy or poultry product, you need to be prepared in a USDA kitchen. And most restaurants are not USDA kitchens. Mm -hmm. So what you have to do is either find a kitchen that is certified, and if it's a kosher product, you still need a rabbinical seal on it. Mm -hmm. And what I try to do is start off small where maybe we rent a space that's available and have it comply with all the usda requirements and then manufacture and there's also test kitchens and kitchens you could rent And some of frankly, these ghost kitchens, which aren't doing the business they thought are available and fully equipped. I like to take baby steps to see if the product is really going to sell. But once you hit a certain critical mass where you can count on a customer base, where you get into a local or even a a regional supermarket chain or a specialty food store chain, or even a convenience store chain, uh, then it pays to find what I call a co-packer. and a co-packer is already in the business of taking your product and, and they already have the ingredients, they have the equipment, they have the labor and they do a run for you. And of course, anything that has a high pH Pro, you know has a long shelf life uh you also need to have somebody test it, some certified lab to make sure that if it's a shelf stable product that it doesn't have any bacteria in it so there's a lot of compliance and it's a whole different supply chain but the best thing to do is work with a co-packer who can literally take your product make sure they sign a non-disclosure agreement about your recipe that they can't duplicate it or compete with it. And there's a legal involvement there. And you also need product liability insurance. But if you have a product that you think can really cut through the shelf space and the clutter of a supermarket, it's fantastic because it's also marketing. I mean, in in New York here, we have a company called Carbone, which uh, is a great Italian restaurant. I see their tomato sauce everywhere, but they were also just at the fancy food show at the specialty food show in New York with a huge booth and doing tastings. So it's a different business model, but it's also a way to have more sales, more marketing. And for me, if I'm a restaurant, I want my brand in the refrigerators, on, uh, in the pantries and on the tables of every customer I can get. All it does is reinforce.
1: Not long ago, we had a couple on the corner booth uh, and they were explaining uh, the process and uh, they seemed to be winning at it. And they went from just a couple small kolache, mm-hmm. uh retail outlets to now a government approved 5,000 mm. square foot processing plant and their frozen kolaches are in like 150 grocery stores. Right, uh, it's, it's wonderful when you see seasonings, marinades, dips, tomato sauces that are independent restaurant recipes going through the process and yep. winning the retail wars and, and getting distribution. So that is that seems to be another avenue that's right. Uh, for brand establishment.
3: But that's what makes the, this industry so wonderful that we can have all of these different outlets, just need someone sometimes to lead you the way. And that's my job. I lead, I train, I hold your hand, I cry with you, I laugh with you, and I help you grow. That's that's all I do as a consultant. Hmm. And of course, bring you know uh, a little optimism to the table.
1: Well, you brought a lot of optimism to us today. We could talk forever and ever, but I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap this up. This has been such a joy. Uh, the, the points yes. that you made are just so on target. I really enjoy talking with you. Thank
3: this has you. been wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And let's do it again and keep sharing with each other and you know bringing, bringing some, some good bites to the table, literally and figuratively. And thank
2: you for all you do for our readers. I really appreciate it, Arlene.
3: My pleasure. Everyone thank check you. out Arlene
1: Spiegel Consulting, man. Reach out and talk with her, especially if you would like to learn a little bit more about the principles she discussed today. And for Barry and myself, we uh, we hope we can all meet up again on another Corner Booth real soon. Thank you all.
3: Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye. We'd like to thank Touch Bistro for sponsoring this episode. Touch Bistro provides an all-in-one POS and restaurant management platform for venues of all sizes, from food trucks to fine dining. Go to touchbistro.com to find out how TouchBistro can solve your restaurant technology challenges today. Thank you for joining us on The Corner Booth. We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.